Good morning. We are, as Bob announced last week, going to start back into church history. Uh, it's been quite a while since I taught this, but uh, we're beginning a new section. So last time that I had taught this, we were in what we called the ancient period, uh, which we decided was roughly the first 500 years of the church history. Uh, and so now we are starting the Middle Ages. Uh, at least we're going to call it that. Um, this this new period, the Middle Ages, or um, you're familiar with the word medieval period. A medieval is just Latin for Middle Ages, uh, if you were wondering about that, um, is basically the period between the ancient and where we are today in the modern era. Uh, of course, the people living in the Middle Ages didn't actually call it the Middle Ages. It was just the present to them. Um, they, just as, you know, we are living in the present now, and someday if the world continues, people will look back on this period and call it something, probably something transitionary. Uh, and so this Middle Age is really a very loosely defined time period. Um, it's often described as beginning with the fall of Rome, which we, we have seen in the past. That happened in 476 AD, um, and loosely ending with the Renaissance period. Uh, we think of that as the start of the modern era. Uh, and the reason that historians choose to separate this this time from the ancient and the modern is because there are some pretty significant differences in the culture and what's going on with religion and different governments in the world. Uh, and it's very much a, a transitory period between what was happening in the ancient world, especially the Roman world, and then what we have in the modern era. Um, but these shifts didn't occur suddenly, uh, which is why we don't really have specific dates for this period. They were very gradual, um, and historians argue about this all the time. Some say it started way back in AD 300, uh, and others say, well, it didn't really happen until like the 1100s, when we start to get closer to the Renaissance period. Um, we often will hear this period referred to as well as the Dark Ages. Um, and this is largely due not to the fact that there was no sunlight or anything, but dark in terms of education. Um, most people weren't educated in this period. Um, health wasn't very good. There were a lot of plagues. There were a lot of wars. Uh, and so it was generally viewed as a dark time in history. However, the Catholic Church tends to view it as a golden era. Um, because for the Catholic Church, this was a time when they sort of were the ruling power in much of Europe. Um, the church did continue to grow and develop. Doctrines were developed. Um, there was a lot of good and a lot of bad that happened within the church in this period. Um, but overall, for the church, it was really the apex of its power and its authority. Um, and so to the church, or to the Catholic Church, looking back, they call this the Golden Era. Um, most of the population of Europe, uh, which is really what our focus is going to be on, because that's where most of the church growth was happening. Uh, so most of the population of Europe were members of the church, uh, not necessarily that they were saved and truly Christians, but they were members of the church. Uh, and that was really the domain of the church at this time. Uh, you could say that this time period was an experiment into what uh, society would look like with the church as its government um, well, prior to glorification. We know the church will be part of how Jesus governed things in the millennial kingdom, 
Um, but this is prior to that. What what does church government look like over the world? Uh, and unfortunately, the answer is that it's a world that is still governed by sinners who are often corrupted by their power and commit monstrous atro- atrocities, even the church. Um, I'm not going to go through these these notes. There's more for your information on the handout there, um, explaining some of what the scene was in Europe, uh, some important ideas and, and figures and a few dates. Um, and we're going to look at a few of these figures and, and things that happened uh, in the in the lesson today, um, so we'll get to those at that point. Um, so our focus really is on the sixth century, which would be five five hundred one through six hundred A.D. Um, and at this point, really, the focus of power, both for the church and the government in Europe, was in Eastern Europe. Uh, as I mentioned, the fall of Rome had happened just about twenty five years prior to this period starting. Uh, And Rome was the major power, especially in Western Europe. Um, But by this point, Rome had split. We've talked about Rome had split, the church had split. There was very much an East and a West divide. Uh, And so West Rome fell. It was conquered by, uh, where'd it go? The Goths in your geopolitical scene there. Uh, And with that, um, that made Eastern Rome um, centered on Constantinople or Byzantium, or if you want to sing the song, Istanbul, uh, became the the popular and and center and core of power and authority for much of Europe. Um, And so as we move through what really is maybe the next 1,000 years, more or less, of the Middle Ages, um, we're going to see the power start to shift from the east towards the west, back into Italy and even up into uh, France and Germany and all the way to England. Uh, But in this century, we are very much looking at Eastern Europe uh, and the area around Constantinople. Uh, For Western Europe, this century was very much a time of uncertainty. Um, As I just said, Rome had fallen, and Rome really was the the civilization that was holding Western Europe together. Uh, They provided the infrastructure, the laws, the military support, you name it. And so with the fall of Rome... Uh, it was a hard time to live in Western Europe. Um, there was a lot of shifting of people groups moving around, invasions from uh, what we call the Germanic tribes up north. The, those would be the Visigoths and the Franks uh, as they moved into different regions. So it was a time of war. Um, it was just not a good time. Um, and it, to make it even worse, we'll look at uh, really quick. On your timeline there, you see AD 536. The worst year to be alive. Many of us thought that was maybe the last year or two here, uh, thanks to COVID. But no, back in, uh, we think somewhere around the end of AD 535, a large volcano somewhere erupted, uh, possibly in Iceland, and spewed a lot of ash into the atmosphere of the northern hemisphere and created a mini ice age uh, in 536 that resulted in Worldwide, at least in the northern hemisphere, Europe and even China, we have records of a massive crop failure that year, which resulted in famine, which um, also the colder temperatures resulted in a rise in disease and things. Uh, and so it was a pretty awful year to be alive. We don't really think about it here. The, you know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking, am I going to starve to death today? No, there's there's food in the pantry and the grocery store. And, but for most of Europe and, and Asia, 536 
was a year of wondering if you were going to starve to death. Uh, on top of uh, just other weird weather phenomenon that happened because of all the ash in the atmosphere. Uh, the same thing has happened again in the early 1800s that really affected North America as well. Um, so it was kind of interesting to read about at the same time. Um, following 536, we continued to see some problems. The Black Plague, which really didn't ravage Europe till later, actually had some strains go through some of the cities in the 540s AD, uh, again, killing a lot of the population. So this century was a really difficult one for Europe, um, especially because of those two reasons and the lack of the structure from Rome. Um, so that's just to give you an idea of what people were living in, what life was like, and what the setting is that we're going to be looking at as we start to see what the church is doing. Uh, and so we're going to start by looking at three influential figures in this century, uh, Benedict of Nursia, uh, the Emperor Justinian, and Pope Gregory I. Um, and we've got some info on all three of them and your important figures bullet there. So we'll start with Benedict. Um, many of you, well, you're probably thinking benediction. No, that's not where it comes from, but the same root words. Uh, but maybe you're familiar with the Benedictine monks. That starts with this guy. Um, and so Benedict is best known for being the founder of the Benedictine order uh, for monasteries. Uh, he was a young man from northern Italy who went to Rome uh, for his education. Um, but when he got there, he was appalled by the rampant sin that he saw in city life. Um, it was a pretty corrupt place at this point. It was, it was after Rome had fallen, so it lacked a lot of structure and really was a very corrupt city. Uh, and so he fled from the city, left his, his schooling behind, uh, and went and lived in a cave in uh, or near Subiaco, Italy, which is just east of Rome. Uh, and so he lived there as a hermit by himself uh, and tried to wrestle with his own um, sins and conquering those problems. Uh, particularly, he struggled with sexual immorality, uh, and according to tradition, he fought that by rolling around naked on thorns. Um, I don't know what verse he got that technique from in the Bible, but uh, apparently it worked for him because he did eventually rejoin society and was known as a very self-controlled man who didn't sin much. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not going to try that. But <laughs> in AD 529 uh, then, he founded his first monastery. It's the monastery at Monte Cassino in Italy. Uh, and it quickly attracted many disciples. Um, there were some monastic orders already in existence at that point, uh, but rather than follow their pattern, he decided to create his own set of rules for his monastery. Uh, and so he broke up the day-to-day -day focus for the monks there into three parts. They would spend roughly four and a half hours together in the morning in collective worship. So you think our church service is long. We're going to start with this. Every day, four and a half hours of worship and then six to seven hours of manual labor, followed by three to five hours of private Bible study, uh, and also studying other writings from early church fathers. Um, his monasteries and any others that would choose to follow his standards were expected to be economically self-sufficient. Um, so that was their six to seven hours of manual labor. They were trying to maybe grow crops, produce different things that they sold to nearby um, 
um, cities or what have you if they needed, or they just grew their own food. But the idea was that they weren't dependent on funding or any kind of a beneficiary sending them money. They were a self-sufficient order. Um, they were very structured, uh, and so these rules actually became very popular, even among other monastic orders, um, and really have been the basis for most Western monasteries ever since. Um, that's really all we're going to say about Benedict, um, but it sets the stage for Gregory when we get to talking about him in just a minute. Um, but first, Emperor Justinian. Uh, he was the emperor uh, of the Eastern Roman Empire, as we're calling it, from AD 527 to 565. Uh, he was a Christian emperor, uh, and he focused very much on using his position as emperor to support the church uh, and to even attempt to maintain unity in the church. He, he tried to force dissenting factions within the church to get along through his authority. Um, he fought various heresies, used his, his governmental authority to suppress those, um, he also began some large-scale construction projects for the churches, uh, the most famous of which would be the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. This was built under his um, funding, you might say. Uh, also, the Basilica of St. John in Ephesus was another one that Justinian caused to be built. Um, and in combating things against Christianity, he closed down the very famous uh, Neoplatonic Academy in the city of Athens. Um, he is known for organizing and codifying the various laws um, for Eastern Rome in a way that would actually be the standard of law for the next thousand years. Um, and he got this structure and this idea of organizing things from the fact that, oh sorry, Gregory gets something from this. I got distracted there. All right. Apparently, everybody's feeling organized in this century, so that's good. <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, Justinian was a warrior. He really wanted to recapture the ancient borders of Rome and reunify that. Um, and so he didn't lead as a warrior, but he financed the war campaigns and actually sent um, armies back to retake Rome and Italy and other regions that used to belong to the greater Roman Empire. Uh, however, by invading Italy, um, the, the remnants of the empire there and of the church as well came to see him as an enemy. They didn't see him as the, the rescuer that he thought he was going to be to them, um, which actually increased the, the separation between the East and the West. Um, they, they no longer trusted each other. They thought they had come to take their lands, to plunder them, to do things like that. Um, and so Justinian, we have here a, a Christian government, a Christian emperor, using his authority to pressure society to conform to Christian beliefs, uh, making religion really the or Christian religion what everybody had to be a part of, and, and using tax money even to support the churches. Um, and so as we talked about earlier, this this period, the Middle Ages, we're going to see really this same idea continue throughout all of this period where the church um, very much is tied to the government and to ruling people and what effects that, that there are when, when the church is in that position of power. Um, so next, we'll talk about Gregory. Uh, Pope Gregory I is also known as Gregory the Great. Uh, was a, a very important leader uh, in a time and place of great fear and uncertainty. 
Uh, Gregory was the pope. Uh, well, being called the pope really means you are the bishop of Rome. Um, and so while most authority and stuff is over in the east in Constantinople, Gregory is still in Rome, still leading the church there. And for people in Western Europe, with, with really the government falling away and the emperor gone from Western Rome, the church becomes the, almost the lighthouse, the beacon that everybody is looking to, to be the figurehead and, and the leadership in Rome. Uh, and Gregory was good at this. As the head of the church in Rome, he was in a great position to fill that need. Uh, in doing so, his office, the office of Pope or Bishop of Rome, gained a lot of power and authority really stretching beyond just the area of Rome, but into much more of Western Europe. Uh, in fact, it continues to hold a lot of that power today. Um, he served really as more than just the head of the church. He was also a political leader for that region. Um, Gregory began his life uh, in a wealthy, influential family, um, but chose to forsake that uh, initially and become a monk. He joined the Benedictine monastery, one of them, uh, and that's where he learned, uh, again, the structure and the discipline of what Benedict had set up for his monasteries. Uh, Gregory gave away all of his wealth and actually turned his home into a monastery for a while. Uh, as he gained experience and position uh, as a monk and then into the church, he was eventually promoted to be the papal representative in the imperial court uh, in 579, uh, and then he was elected pope in 590. So he's coming along at the end of this 6th century. Uh, and he served reluctantly for the next 14 years as pope. He, he didn't actually want that position, even though he, he did a good job with it. Um, and so he is known, along with uh, a few people we've looked at already or will look at, Jerome, Augustine, and Ambrose, uh, together with Gregory, are sort of considered the four great leaders of the Western Church uh, in earlier church history. Uh, and while the other three, Greg, uh, no, sorry, Jerome, Augustine, and Ambrose, are all known for their theological contributions, <laughs> Gregory is known more for his administrative impact with his organization of the church uh, coming from his uh, experiences as a Benedictine monk. Um, Gregory wasn't necessarily the kind of person we would agree with on his theology, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, he started to take the church away from a lot of the doctrine that had been developed by St. Augustine, uh, particularly that salvation was by grace alone. He began to teach that Christians had to earn that grace. So salvation is by grace, but you have to earn the grace first through your works. Uh, and also that a person can lose their salvation at any time if they aren't being good enough, if their works just don't add up. Um, and so this is the basic notion of, of earnable and losable salvation that's going to become, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of how the church will manipulate people for a while to get them to do what the church wants. Um, they will use their authority to maintain control over the common people uh, and, and other churches through this fear that they might lose their salvation by not, by not doing the good enough works. Uh, Gregory's writings about having to earn salvation, in fact, are going to be used later on by the Catholic Church to support the idea of purgatory, uh, although Gregory himself never did develop the idea of purgatory, but his writings would be used for that. 
Um, another topic that Gregory wrote extensively about was that uh, the clergy, all clergy, should be preachers. Um, he, uh, along with many earlier and, and pastors of his same time, taught that preaching was the primary responsibility of the clergy. Uh, and I think we would agree with that. But unfortunately, he was one of the last ones in the church to teach that idea for quite a while. Uh, after him, they would start to move away from the idea that the clergy should preach and more to the idea that the clergy just served in other functions <coughs> within the church. You okay? No, praise I, d- I do. <laughs> All right. Uh, and finally, Gregory was very well known for his views on missions. Uh, he did use his position as pope and then the funding that came with it to support a lot of missionary efforts. Uh, one that we won't really look at, but I'll mention was uh, Columbo was his name, very similar to Columbus. He was one of the earliest missionaries up to England and Scotland in those areas uh, and developed a lot of churches up in that area. And He was financed. We are uh, early 600s a little bit with that, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, Gregory's time as pope was 590 to um, 604, so... Um, So Gregory encouraged the church to send missionaries, especially to northwestern Europe um, and England in particular. Uh, And through his missionary endeavors, he was able to expand his influence. Uh, As I said, Rome was very much, at this point, the leader of the western church. um, And so any missionary efforts they made just put these regions under his influence and under his authority. Um, Some of the main opponents to these evangelists and missionaries at this time were paganism, um, really the the non-Christian religions out there. The Germanic tribes were worshiping very much the uh, what we think of as the Norse gods, Um, and also the heresy of Arianism was very popular in some regions at this time. And a third, uh, an even greater threat, if you will, or opponent in in the realm of religion is going to rise up in the next century, the 7th century. Any guesses what that is? Islam. Islam is about to start in the world. Yeah. Um, And so we'll probably take a look at that next time I teach. Next week, no. (laughs) I don't think we have Sunday school next week since it's Easter Sunday. Yeah. Um, But next time I teach, we'll be in the 7th century and we will talk about Islam. Uh, And finally, one last note about Gregory. Um, He is often credited with inventing Gregorian chanting, if you're familiar with that. Um, Although this is just a legend that he's the one who invented it, and most scholars think he didn't. It probably was invented actually a little later than his time period. Um, but that is, he is the Gregory that Gregorian chanting is named after. He is not the Gregory that the Gregorian calendar comes from, though. So, just to clarify, if that's the calendar we use today. wasn't him. <laughs> All right, the last topic, then, I want to talk about instead of a person is the topic of iconoclasm. You'll see that in your important ideas there. Uh, and this... It has been a big issue through much of church history, but it really was popular uh, and a problem in the 6th century. Um, and so iconoclasm is the use of images or icons uh, in the church. Uh, can you think of any images or icons in our church? 
the cross. Yeah, we've got a picture of some guy praying right there. That's an image. Um, I don't know if our missionary pictures count, but we definitely use images and, and icons, which would be three-dimensional images, like our, our cross sculptures up on the wall and out front there. Um, and we use them to aid in our worship, right, to, to direct our thoughts. Uh, well, prior to the 5th century, the church had taught that icons especially were not to be used to aid in worship um, because of the third commandment in Exodus, uh, saying that you shall not make any graven image. Uh, okay. Uh, theologians in the early church taught that any religious icon, even a cross or a painting that was supposed to be Jesus, was an idol because it, it's not actually Jesus, it's, it's an image. Uh, and so the churches didn't use anything like that. Uh, but eventually, people within the church started using these things in their own private devotions. People started setting up things in their house um, and using them in their worship, you know, focusing on the cross as they prayed or that type of thing. Uh, as this became more and more popular, it started to make its way into the actual church services, uh, and so they became incorporated into many of the buildings. Of course, if you go to most churches in Europe, you're going to see a lot of fancy stained glass in the windows with, filled with images of things. Um, so as this, this idea is growing more and more popular, it's going to become a big controversy. Uh, in the Eastern Church, I'm, we're going to jump a little bit around in the centuries now since we're focused on an issue. Uh, in the Eastern Church, especially in the 8th and 9th centuries, the official policy about whether icons are good or bad is going to flip-flop multiple times. Sometimes they'll be bad and heresy. Sometimes they'll be good, and everybody will pull them out of the closets where they were hiding and use them again. Uh, and so eventually, the final policy of the Eastern Church, um, ever since the year 843, has been that icons are beneficial for worship. Uh, the Western Church, on the other hand, resisted using icons for a much longer period and often accused the Eastern Church of idolatry because of this, uh, which further split the East and Western churches. Uh, later on, however, the Western Church would start to use both flat images, such as paintings, and carved images, such as crosses and statues. Uh, well, the Eastern Church actually continues to strongly refuse to use any kind of carved image, uh, because of that specific word in Exodus that you shouldn't have a graven image. Um, so Eastern churches have tons of images. Um, Western churches, we have images and graven items, if you will, icons. Um, and so the Eastern church then accused the Western church of idolatry because they were using these graven images. Um, and that remains really where, what we're at today as far as the Eastern Church still uses only flat images and the Western Church uh, and, and the different branches that came out of it, like Protestantism, we tend to continue to use both flat and carved images, uh, though not as many as the Eastern Church uses in overall quantity. Um, both church groups, of course, claim that we aren't worshiping these images or these icons because we do acknowledge that that would be idolatry. Um, but we're using them to help focus our worship on God. Um, I'm not aware of any passages in the New Testament that the church uses to support these ideas uh, or to condemn them either way. Um, we simply actually changed our stance based on what was popular among church members. 
as I said, it started in the homes and made its way into the churches. Um, do you guys think that was right or wrong for that to be um, what the church did, that they adapted church policy to what was popular amongst the people? Doesn't sound like a good thing. Um, no, and yet we have crosses. I don't know if they used it for worship or, uh, and again, my, my understanding of that comes from a kid's cartoon show where they, they, it was like the secret symbol to mark like, okay, the persecuted church is meeting here, you know. Um, yeah, that thing, the fish. I don't think they were worshiping it. So, yeah. <laughs> Europe and Eastern Asia. Um, the, the Eastern Roman Empire did have a strong influence in parts of, sorry, Western Asia. Um, <laughs> wrong direction there, yeah. Uh, originally, er, early church, I, I taught about this a while ago, so a refresher. There were five main churches, um, Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Constantinople. Uh, Rome was the only one located in the west. The other four were all east. So when we talk east and west, for the most part, that's still the divide. I haven't toured Eastern Europe at all, but I think if you were to go to most of the Orthodox churches, whether they're Greek or Russian or Eastern Orthodox, you would see flat. You wouldn't see statues. We tend to see the statues in the Catholic churches um, and, and those branches. What's it? Eastern would be the Orthodox ones that don't use the statues. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, there isn't a particular dividing line. It's, um, you know, started with those five churches, and then whatever churches they planted tended to associate with them. And, um, and of course, emperors had an influence. <laughs> yes, Gary? And we, came out of the we came out of the Western Church. Yeah. That's why we have a three-dimensional cross up front. <laughs> All right. Um, just a... Some more thinking on this topic. Um, we, we have adopted in, in many ways. And one of the most common, I think, is dress code, right? I'm not dressed like a first century apostle. None of us are. Uh, so clearly the church has adopted in some way to what culture was doing. Uh, and even in modern times, we can see that. A hundred years ago, I think every man in this church would have been wearing uh, a full suit and a tie and a beard and maybe a top hat. Now only Seth wears the top hat, but <laughs> and a few of us rock the beards because we're holier than the rest, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but today we have, you know, as we're all je- dressed, we're for the most part um, casual, nice. Maybe we call it our church attire, um, but other churches in the area, you might have even the pastor wearing a T-shirt and flip-flops and shorts as he preaches. Um, and so definitely... Dress code is an area that we've changed a lot. Uh, music is another one I want to talk about. Um, we, I think, talked about it a little in early church history, but for a while the church didn't use musical instruments at all, and then they've added instruments. And this has been another point of controversy. Should we use instruments? Should, should we not in our worship? What style of music? Should we only do chanting or hymns or modern contemporary worship songs? Um, should we have colored lights and fog machines? I, Actually, was just talking to uh, Bob Petey about getting those installed, I think. We're going to start using those soon. <laughs> oh, we're, we're kidding. It was Ross's idea. He wants to do Hillsong music. <clears throat> uh, 
the important question is, is really what is, like with music, what is the purpose and the focus of our music uh, or our attire or our cultural practices? Are we focusing on God, who God is, worshiping God in spirit and in truth for what he has done and continues to do? Uh, or are we just trying to please ourselves with the music or just enjoy the music or even try to evoke an emotional response from the music? That's very popular in a lot of churches today. Uh, and to make that emotional response be, you know, uh, a spiritual experience. Um, really, any style of music and worship can be wrong if you use it with the wrong motives. Uh, the same thing with icons. If we're worshiping the icons, even if we're worshiping a cross, it's, it's idolatry. Um, and so in all of these examples, we don't see clear, specific instructions in the scripture about don't use you know, this type of image in your worship. You must sing that type of song. Um, And so it is up to us to, as a church, you know, evaluate our heart in these issues. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to conclude this. And uh, what Solomon, yes, Carrie. Romans 2. Romans 2. I was going to conclude with Solomon's words at the end of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, now all has been heard and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. So it's not about you, it's about God. That wraps up our, as Bob called it, fitting one century into one lesson. (laughs) Sixth century in about 45 minutes or less. Um, Any other questions? For the most part, they couldn't, yeah. And even, even if it was in another language, most people weren't educated anymore. That's why we called it the Dark Ages. The Catholic Church wasn't that bad yet. It's still the true church at this point. So that's largely going to come late, very late in the medieval period and into the early Renaissance where we'll see things like the Crusades and the Inquisition um, and that type of thing. Yeah, I think that's what you're thinking of with the torture. Or even into early modern era, if you think of like the, the witch trials and things like that. Yeah, church with power is also a corrupt entity. I don't think it's as much the same idea. Um, We talked about it in one of the more recent lessons with the the idea of praying to saints um, and their understanding of the hierarchy, especially in, in ancient Rome where you know, you couldn't go talk to the emperor directly if you had a request. You had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. They thought of God the same way. Um, and so the relics associated with saints were meant to be sort of a connecting point to the saints. Like, I didn't know the saint because he was dead, but I've got his sandal, so he's probably going to listen to me, you know. All right. Well, thank you, guys. All right. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for another day together here and thank you that we we do have your word to guide us and we have history that has been recorded that we can look back and study and see how uh, through all of the ups and downs through all of our failings you remain faithful god ask that you would uh, change us from the inside out lord that our our hearts would be uh, seeking to glorify you, that our desires would be your desires, Lord, and that our actions would follow suit, that our actions would not be to please men on the outside appearance, but to be obedient to you out of our love and our fear of you. Thank you for 
all of your grace to us and just ask that you would be with Will as he brings the word today and, and bless the rest of the service. Amen.